Hey everyone, and welcome to Mind Body Green's Beauty Podcast, Clean Beauty School. I'm your host, Mind Body Green's Beauty Director, Alexandra Engler. Today we're talking about sunscreen. Specifically, we're going to be talking about all the information we've gotten wrong, misconceptions debunked, and the best sun care practices. So, sun care is actually a really complicated subject. Shockingly complicated, in fact. And one that honestly garners quite a bit of debate. So, first and foremost, one thing you'll hear our guest and I discuss quite a bit is it is so, so important that we protect our skin. We know this to be true. Excessive sun exposure can lead to premature aging, skin damage, and potentially skin cancer like melanoma. But there's also a lot we don't know. See, how we are protecting our skin and all the nuances that go into sunscreen formulas, this is where we get into some gray area. But it's not just the SPF and formula itself. It's things like user behavior and the advice we give people when they're out in the sun. All of these things play a huge role in this discussion. And listen, I don't want to give too much away before we dive in because we are going to get into the nitty gritty details, but this is all to say that smart sun care is not as simple as just finding an SPF that you like. Now, I've been wanting to do a deep dive into sunscreen for some time now. I just struggled with the right guest, and it wasn't until I was introduced to George Zayden's work that I knew he was absolutely going to be the one to help explain all of this to us. So... Now, George is a science communicator, writer, and journalist who is an expert at diving into the research. He is just so talented at explaining all of the complicated stuff in ways that's fun and interesting without sacrificing any of the nuance. Now, his most recent book, which is how I was introduced to his work, takes a whole chapter to explain what the deal is with SPF. And since reading it, I knew that he would be the perfect person to have on and chat about this topic. I can't wait to get into it. So, George, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I'm so excited to have this conversation today. This is a topic that I am so interested in and so passionate about. And there is just so much confusion with it in the beauty space and for the consumer. So I think this episode will be super helpful. But before we get into sunscreen and SPF and all the research that comes along with it. I just want to set up your bio for everybody. You know, you are an MIT trained chemist. You are a science writer and journalist. Most recently, your book, Ingredients and the Strange Chemistry of What We Put In and On Us. You know, it dives into common ingredients, out there ingredients, and all the nuance that comes into them. So will you just tell me your story and your journey and how you crafted this fascinating career for yourself? Sure. So when, when I was in middle school, I, I wanted to be a, a Hollywood director. And my parents were not, they were not okay with that. They were like, you'll, you'll never make a living that way. And <laughs> so I kind of like, I, it was aimless for a while. Then in high school, I had a really good chemistry teacher. I decided to focus on science. That led me to MIT and to chemistry. And that was all great. And then at the end of college, I had another like aimless life crisis where I didn't know what to do. Um, and then a friend of mine was like, hey, you should check out this show on the Food Network. It's called Good Eats, and they do a lot of science. So I, I, I did. I watched it, and I applied to be, on, to be on the show, and I got hired as a production assistant, like the lowest totem pole on the, on the ladder, lowest rung on the ladder. And it was like two years of basically film school. And then around that same time, science communication started to get popular. I find myself with like 
two skill sets that people wanted, you know, explaining sciencey stuff and making videos. And the the rest kind of is is history. So let's get into the topic of the episode, sunscreen. It is quite the confusing topic and deceptively confusing. I think that it's it's so strange that we are here in 2021 and we are still so uninformed about sunscreen and sun damage and how much protection we actually get from sunscreen and what it actually does for us. This is a strange question to ask, but why don't we know anything? <laughs> or why don't we know more, I guess, is the more appropriate question. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I think we should start by highlighting the thing that we do know very, very well, which is there's no doubt that too much sun causes skin cancer. So, you know, every single dermatologist out there will tell you to avoid getting too much sun, to wear a hat, to wear sunglasses, certainly like don't go to tanning salons. And the evidence behind that statement is, in my opinion, like rock solid, no issues there. Um, Where things get, I think, a little hairy and surprising for me when I started to look into this is when we start talking about how good sunscreen is at preventing skin cancer. And that's kind of where I was a little surprised at what I found. Tell me more. You know, all sunscreens protect you to some degree from the sun's UV light, which, and that UV light we know gives you a sunburn and we know damages your DNA. But, but like sunscreen is not a perfect shield. That's actually why it used to be called sunblock. And then the FDA was like, no, you can't call it sunblock because that makes it sound like it's like literally blocking the sun and it's screening the sun. So no sunscreen is perfect. And that raises this, the million dollar question, which is like, does sunscreen reduce your risk of skin cancer? And, and the best available evidence today suggests that, yeah, it probably does reduce your risk of certain types of skin cancer. But the best available evidence today is one randomized controlled trial that was conducted more than 20 years ago with an SPF 16 sunscreen <laughs> that sure. is fairly different than sunscreens that are on the market today. And the study was conducted in Australia, where the sun is trying to kill you as well as, you know, all other living <laughs> things down there. So, you know, all that's to say that the, the best evidence that we have is not as good as we would like it to be, but it's what we've got. So, you know, before we get into the conversation of sunscreen efficacy and how all they work in practical situations and what circumstances you might need them, let's talk about how they actually work, you know, and in your work, you you break it down into the nitty gritty details. There's a dance analogy involved from what I remember. Will you walk us through how chemical and physical sunscreens work and what sort of misconceptions that we we have about how they work? Totally. So so sunscreens sunscreens are like a chemical marvel. Yeah. And to, to really understand how they work, okay, let's start with the sun. So um, the sun is just constantly shooting bazillions of these tiny weightless balls of light energy at us. These balls are called photons. You've probably heard this word before. The, the photons come in a range of energies. Some are higher, some are lower. And in the higher energy category, there are ultraviolet photons, ultraviolet light, right? That is what sunscreen is designed to absorb because UV photons will damage your DNA. Okay, so that's the, the background. Now, imagine a sunscreen molecule, and, and I'm going to say you can picture it as a rubber chicken, which is probably going to give many chemists, like, you know, have it rolling over in their grave or whatever, but you can picture it kind of like a rubber chicken. So when a photon from the sun crashes into this rubber chicken, it transfers its energy to the rubber chicken. And to get rid of that energy, the chicken does uh, kind of what looks like an interpretive dance. And as it's dancing, one of its legs will flail out and kick a nearby molecule. Let's say it's a water molecule. 
So that molecule, which got kicked, now starts vibrating faster. And molecular vibrations are heat. So the environment around this rubber chicken sunscreen molecule is now a tiny bit hotter than it was. But then the chicken like settles down and it stops dancing. And at that point, it can get hit by another photon. And then the whole like dance cycle starts again and repeats itself. So the big picture here is that one molecule of sunscreen can absorb a photon of ultraviolet light from the sun and convert it into heat, which heat is pretty much harmless. It's not going to damage your DNA. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, when you start talking about like the scale here, it's pretty impressive. Like one molecule of oxybenzone, which is a common sunscreen ingredient, can absorb 90 billion ultraviolet photons per second. Um, and, you know, that, that number is very impressive, but like the number of photons that are hitting you from the sun every second is way higher than that. So, you know, and, you know, inorganic sunscreens, which are commonly called physical sunscreens, work in a very similar way. They absorb photons and they convert them to heat. So that's interesting to me because that is um, not usually the analogy that we use here in the beauty industry. We, you know, we call physical and chemical. Um, when we talk about physical, you know, we visualize it as blocking the sun and chemical, you know, we do talk about how it absorbs. So like, is that some sort of misconception here? It is actually. So, okay. you know, a lot of people will divide sunscreen up into these two class- classes, quote unquote, chemical and then quote unquote, physical. Um in reality, so b- both kinds are, are chemical. They're just they're just different kinds of chemical. Yeah. And then the the idea that like physical sun or quote unquote physical sunscreens, which really are are inorganic sunscreens, the idea that those will like reflect sunlight like a mirror. That's the misconception. They, okay. they do they do do a little bit of reflection and scattering, but their main mechanism is also to absorb uh, UV light and convert it into heat. So the difference between physical and chemical sunscreens is a distinction we make quite a bit in the beauty industry. Certainly, I've done it plenty of times in my own writing, physical or inorganic, are things like titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. Chemical are ingredients like oxybenzone, avobenzone, homeoslate, and so on. Now, obviously it turns out that the difference in mechanisms isn't all that much. However, we still recommend sticking to titanium dioxide and zinc oxide as they are thought to be better for the environment and as we'll discuss later, more effective. So, okay. so yeah, that, that is a bit of a misconception out there. I mean, just quick follow-up to that is like there, from what you can tell from your research, is there a reason why we are so like adamant about separating the two into two different classes if there's not that huge of a difference? You know, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. Yeah, I like... I was just I, curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how this got started. I'm sure it's like deep in the sunscreen literature from, from decades sure. ago. I yeah. guess that's more my job. I'll go look that up. <laughs> okay. So, you know, they absorb the heat. Or I'm sorry. They absorb the sun. They kind of turn into heat and mm-hmm. they protect your skin that way. But they're, you know, they're imperfect. And so a certain amount kind of gets through... Is that where the problem comes up? It, it, probably, although you know, we, we there's no way to know for sure. It, you know, it's like just because you know how something works doesn't mean you understand everything about it. So, like, sure, the study that came out that explained how uh, a molecule of sunscreen, you know, vibrates, dances, absorbs uh, photons. That's a that's a fairly recent study. It's much newer than the study uh, out of Australia that suggested that sunscreens preventing it against skin cancer. So, so. You know, in science, like t- figuring out whether something works and understanding how it works are related but separate problems, right? Sure. Yeah. 
So we can, we can know, for example, that sunscreen really does prevent sunburn without having any clue how it prevents sunburn. And that mm-hmm. was probably the case for most of sunscreen's history. So we don't really talk about sunscreen's history in this episode, but in George's work, he gets into it quite a bit. It's interesting and worth touching on briefly here, but I do recommend George's book for the whole story. So modern sunscreens closest ancestor was invented in 1935 and was used as a product to protect against sunburn. At this time, it wasn't a product that was connected to skin cancer reduction in any way. And it wasn't until 2012 that the FDA updated its labeling guidelines for sunscreen, allowing brands to make sun cancer claims on the drugs panel. Like, When sunscreen was invented, you know, people did not understand the molecular basis of how it worked, but we, we knew damn well that it was very, very good at preventing sunburn. So those are two, those are two unrelated things. So, you know, your question about like, well, is that the issue? Is it that some UV photons get through the sunscreen and that's why, you know, maybe the, the data that, that shows that they're, that they prevent skin cancer is not that great. It it might be, but we just don't know. Let's talk about SPF, sun protection factor. You know, this is for the listeners not there, this is the number that you're going to see on on the label on your sunscreen. You know, it usually ranges anywhere from like 15 to 100. I have so many questions about SPF in particular. I will not ask you all of them today. That would be cruel. But <laughs> there are a few that I want to get into because it, it seems like you might have some good insights. And, you know, certainly it's um, been in the news quite a bit lately. And you explain it qu- quite well in your work. Um, will you walk us through how... SPF, the number in particular is decided, you know, I've, I've obviously read your work. I, I knew this, but the way you explained it was just so effortless about, you know, how it all comes down to humans doing research in a lab. Will you explain this to us just so people can understand how we get to the numbers? Yeah, absolutely. So I think th- there's another misconception here before we get into the specific process is that people will say SPF of oh, sun protection factor. It actually stands for sun burn protection factor. And, mm, and the reason that's okay. important is because uh, SPF is very specific to sunburn, and, and we'll get into how it's measured, and you'll see what that what that means. So, how SPF is measured? Okay, so you find you find a pasty white person, all right, and you take that person and you put them in a lab, and, and you make them take off their shirt, right, and you've got this person's lower back, all right. Now, I'm an F- SPF tester. What I do is I will take a very specific amount of the sunscreen I'm testing, and I will smear it on the lower half of this person's back. I'll wait for the sunscreen to dry, and then I'll take a stencil. The stencil has two rows of squares cut out, and I'll put it over this person's lower back. So I've got now two rows of pale white skin, right? The top row, no sunscreen. The bottom row has sunscreen. And I take a UV light, and I give this person increasing doses of UV light from left to right. And so so the, the first column, the two squares on the left, they get very little UV light. And the last column, all the way on the right, they get a lot of UV light. And what I'm interested in is how much UV light does it take to just barely give this person a sunburn in the top row, which has no sunscreen, versus the bottom row, which does have sunscreen. Now, let's say it takes 30 times as much UV light to give this person a sunburn with sunscreen versus without sunscreen. That sunscreen is SPF 30. So you are essentially taking the amount of UV light that it takes to just barely give a white person a sunburn with sunscreen and dividing that by 
the same value without sunscreen. And that's your SPF. You do this a bunch of times, you repeat it with a bunch of people, you take the average, you know, and, and that's your SPF. So SPF is super, super, super specific to sunburn. And it's literally measured by giving people sunburns. Like there's yeah. not, you know, it's not like, oh, we're going to punch in the ingredients into a computer and you can do that. You can estimate the SPF, but the FDA requires this exact testing procedure for a sunscreen to be sold in the U.S. Yeah. A handful of follow-ups here. Yeah. I, I think understanding this process is so important for for people to to know because recently, for example, there was that report that came out that said, you know, half of the products out there don't protect you to the level at which they say they do. You know, so they're not reaching the protection level that's the SPF that's on the label. And I think this process is important to understand because it kind of puts that, you know, that report in context. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is is there a better way to do this? I mean, is there, will human failure always have some sort of element in this? Is there always going to be that risk that your SPF number isn't, you know, matching up to what, what protection is giving you? Or is this, yeah, I guess I'm just curious about like yeah. how we get here and yeah. can we do it better? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, SPF is determined in a lab setting and we use sunscreens in the real world. So, you know, there are going to be tons of differences. So for example, you know, in a lab, you're not giving a person a sunburn with the sun. You're giving them a sunburn with a UV lamp. In in the lab, sunscreen is applied with a gloved finger and allowed to dry. It's not massaged into your skin like sure. a moisturizer. You know, in a lab, you don't go for a swim. You don't towel dry yourself. Like people don't sweat in the lab. And, and the most important difference actually is that in the lab, the amount of sunscreen that's that's tested is two milligrams per square millimeter of skin. And if you actually try putting that amount on your body, I mean, it's like you're smearing butter on yourself. Sure. Um, so, and no one um, actually does that is the problem. And no <laughs> one actually not. does that, right? Yeah, yeah. They just put the amount that feels correct to them, right? Yeah. So, you know, all of those differences mean that you're basically guaranteed to not get the protection, the, the like exact SPF number that you're seeing on the bottle. Now, does that mean that we like shouldn't do it this way anymore? I mean, I think you need the lab studies because you have to have a a reliable way to compare one sunscreen to another. And unless you standardize, you know, if you don't standardize that, then you could have one manufacturer claiming it's SPF 100 and another claiming it's SPF 30, and it could be completely different testing conditions. So you'd have no idea whether, you know, those numbers were comparable or not. So, you know, my, my like personal rule of thumb here is like, whatever you see on the bottle, divide by like two or three. That's probably the effective SPF you're getting. Divide by two or three. All right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of like goes into my next question. There's been several, several reports about, you know, how how high of a number you should aim for and Mm -hmm. what's the difference and does it actually make a difference? You know, I remember that study that came out or that report that came out several years ago that was saying anything over 30 or anything over 50 is such like a minimal difference, it doesn't really matter. You wrote about it in, in your work. I actually remember when this study came out, we wrote about it where at the publication I was at mm-hmm. at the time, and we even gave this advice to people. But then, you know, later other studies come out and they they contradict that. So I just think there's so much confusion about like what number you should actually aim for with your SPF. Do you have a take on this? Yeah. So I see that, that, that advice all the time, you know, it's like, Oh, if it's, if it's over SPF 30, it doesn't really matter. And, th- and the reason that people give that advice, it's very well intentioned. So they'll, yeah. they'll look and they'll say, okay, 
SPF 30 absorbs 97% of UV rays and SPF 100 absorbs 99% of UV rays. So like, what's the real difference there? It's just 2%, right? That's what it seems like, but, but that's, I, that's completely wrong. And the reason it's wrong um, is because we're focused on the wrong number, right? The important thing is not how many photons you're turning away. The important thing is how many photons get through, right? So if we look at it from that lens, SPF 100 lets in 1% of UV rays, and SPF 30 lets in 3% of UV rays. Now, that's triple what SPF 30 lets in. So, you know, SPF 100 really is roughly three times better at preventing sunburn than SPF 30. Now, the question is like, okay, does that mean that we should all switch from 30 to 100? That I think is a much more complicated question because it depends partially on your behavior. Like what are you using the sunscreen for, right? Yeah. I mean, this goes perfectly into the next thing I want to talk about, user behavior. As a beauty editor and beauty journalist, user behavior is something that I I consider so much in my writing because we know that, you know, you can you can offer the best products, the best whatever, you know, the most effective and potent ingredients to people, but if they're not using it correctly or they're using it too much or they're using it not enough or whatever it is, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference and, you know, or it makes a difference, but it doesn't it's not going to have its intended outcome. And I think user behavior with sunscreen is perhaps some of the most egregious, <laughs> you know, just because people aren't going to put on the amount of sunscreen that they need to, to meet this level of SPF or whatever. And we just know that to be true. Like we have done surveys for the past decade and we just know that people aren't changing their behavior. We just know that no matter how much awareness we put out there, no matter how how many stories we write about how they need to reapply and reapply and do all this stuff, we know that they're not changing their behavior. One thing that you brought up and you know, I've heard you talk about before, and I think it's a, an important point. So I want to bring up here and talk about it here. Is not using sunscreen as an excuse to just like do whatever you want in the sun. What do you mm-hmm. mean by this? So, can I tell a quick story about user behavior first? Yes. Oh my gosh, please. So, okay, <laughs> the classic example of user behavior screwing the user is when you are prescribed antibiotics and you're sure. like, you take the first dose, you take the second dose and you're like, oh, I feel so much better. I'm just mm-hmm. going to stop taking this now. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you could not, I mean, that is just the worst. You're just, you're just selecting for the bacteria that are resistant to the antibiotics mm-hmm. and you're buying your, it's, it's just a bad, like finish the full course of antibiotics, yes. you know, but this happens all the time in medicine and, and you're right. Like sunscreen is, is absolutely no exception. Um, and to answer your question about like, you know, basically using sunscreen as, ex- as an excuse to do whatever you want in the sun. I'm going to go back to the, to the first thing, which is like, we know really well that too much sun causes skin cancer. And, you know, in my research, I was talking with this guy who's a Belgian epidemiologist and he has a really interesting theory, which he, so he thinks that using sunscreen actually lets you overdose on sun exposure. And his theory is like, it goes like this. White people like to tan, but they don't like to burn. So they buy super high SPF sunscreen, which effectively, you know, does its job. It's absorbing most of the photons that cause sunburn. But because, you know, you're not getting sunburned, you stay out in the sun way longer than your body would otherwise let you. And so his theory is like sunscreen lets you circumvent your body's natural like alarm system, you know? And he actually wrote in one of his papers, which is like the scientific scientific equivalent of like throwing a bomb over a wall. He says, you know, the... um, the recommendation to reapply sunscreen, which by the way is legally required here in the U.S., 
he said, quote, probably represents a form of abuse. Now, oh my I don't, gosh. Yeah, like I, I don't know that I would go that far. But like the one thing, the part of his argument that convinces me at least is that, you know, sunscreen really does actually let you stay out in the sun longer without getting a sunburn. And is that good? I don't think so. Like, I yeah. don't think that if you're spending all day at the beach slathering sunscreen on, just, you know, turning yourself over like a chicken in one of those, you know, rotisserie <laughs> things at Costco or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't think that that there's just no way that that can be good for you. I think yeah, sunscreen, it's like sunbathing for sport. Exactly. Yeah. Sunbathing for sport. Like I just think sun, I think sunbathing for sport is just, is not a good thing to do. And if you're using high SPF sunscreen to like, let you do that longer, I think that's a bad idea. Yeah. So another thing that goes off this and user behavior is how much we we've touched on this briefly, how much we tell people to apply and how much they mm -hmm. should apply. We tell people to apply a lot of sunscreen, an unpleasant amount of sunscreen. I am somebody who knows this deeply and through and through, but I still don't enjoy applying that much sunscreen. And I'm somebody who is in the industry and cares a lot about this. Like what yeah. does that say for the common person? You know? Yeah. yeah. And I we're telling them to do something that we know is unpleasant and they're not going to do. And we just keep on asking them to do it. And I guess, is it irresponsible at this point? I mean, you know, earlier you had a phrase applying what feels right. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, can you just talk a little bit more about that and what can we do and what, what should we be telling people to do in this yeah. regard? Yeah. So I think that the thing that's important for folks to understand is the SPF number on the bottle, that is not an intrinsic property of the sunscreen that depends on how much you put on yourself. So the reason I said earlier, like what I do in my mind is mentally divide the SPF by two or three. The, the main reason I do that is because I know I'm not applying the same amount that they used in the test, right? Because it's just, it's just uncomfortable. Um, you know, and, and like some folks say like, Oh, this, you know, people should follow instructions better, but like, if the instructions tell me to take butter and smear it all over myself, I'm just not going to do it, right? Like sure. it's it's uncomfortable. So, you know, some, some other folks say, well, let's change the amount that we test with. And that's that's a reasonable solution. But then you have a problem where if you're going to change the amount you test with, then you're going to have sunscreens on the market that are older or you have an old bottle in your house that says SPF 100, but it was tested in a different way that the, the new bottle says SPF 50, you know, it, like it complicates matters a lot. So- I mean, I don't think there, unfortunately, I don't think there is an easy answer to your question. Unless like just knowing that the amount you apply partially determines the SPF you're getting. Just like that nugget of information I think is important for people to have in their minds when they're when they're putting on sunscreen. But, but other than that, like I, I don't think there's an easy solution here. Okay. So one of the cornerstones, cornerstones of your work on SPF is the discussion between sunburn protection versus sun, sun cancer protection. We've obviously talked about it a little bit before this, but I want to just get into it a little bit more. You know, I've heard you reference some other studies that I found fascinating about, you know, what, what sort of sun exposure is actually linked or what we think is actually linked to cancer versus, you know, what, what isn't, um, can we just talk about like what what information we have out there? You brought up the the one that we base everything off of the Australian study, but has there been anything else that's more recent that we can kind of glean information from on this topic? Yeah, so the Australian study is the most recent randomized controlled trial, and that's yeah. that's the type of study where you take two groups of people, you give 
you assign one group to like, you know, wear sunscreen every day and you tell the other group, you don't prevent them from wearing sunscreen because that would be unethical, right? But sure, you, you, you tell them like, do whatever you want, you know, and you compare the results over time. And, and like, it's actually, I think, worth talking about in detail the, the results of that trial. Um, yeah, please. Just a, li- a little more. So, you know, that trial, it was mostly designed to look at squamous and basal cell carcinomas. Those are, mm-hmm. those are much more common than melanoma, but they're less serious than mm-hmm. melanoma. And strangely, the results were kind of a little different for each cancer. So, you know, for basal cell, sunscreen didn't seem to do all that much. But for squamous cell, sunscreen didn't change the risk of getting a tumor, right? But if you did get one or more tumors, sunscreen cut the number of tumors you got in half. So, so it, like it didn't change your risk of getting cancer, but if you were going to get cancer, it cut the number of cancers you got in half, right? Specifically for squam- squamous cell. Um, for melanoma, the trial found, and they had to, they had to wait longer to, to do this because melanomas take a while to crop up in people. But the trial found that sunscreen cut your risk of getting melanoma in half, but those numbers were very small. It was only 33 cases of total melanoma, which makes the statistics a little harder to interpret. So, you know, in an ideal world, like we would take that study and we'd be like, okay, great. That, that's a great start. We need to do a larger study so that we have better statistics. We need to do it with modern sunscreens. And I would argue like doing it in Australia is great because the the rates of skin cancer in Australia are a lot higher than most other places in the world. And so there's clearly a need there, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of people who don't live in Australia who don't have that (laughs) level of UV exposure all the time. And it would be useful. And, you know, those all people, those people are all getting advice to wear sunscreen all the time from their dermatologists. So it'd be useful to know if that advice is backed by science. So I'd say like, let's do a trial that's partially in Australia and partially not in Australia or two different trials, right? I yeah. think like we, we know, you know, we know, we know things about how the sun damages your DNA. We know how that gets to be cancer. But, but like I said before, like just because you know how something works doesn't mean you know whether it works. And so I think we, we, I, a little more data on, on whether sunscreen is effective would be, would be great. To answer your question about like, well, what else is out there? We've done, so, you know, there have been other studies that, that look at things like, well, if you get a lot of sunburns at an early age as a kid, does that increase your risk of melanoma? Or is it like, you know, if you, if you work outside a lot all day, how does that change your risk of basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma? And, you know, there are, there are a fair number of those trials and they all broadly show that like, too much sun does in fact lead to skin cancer. But I, I wouldn't say that we know conclusively like, okay, you know, more than 10 sunburns as a child and you're definitely getting melanoma. Our, our level of confidence is not that high. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? why haven't they done more studies? Is it just because this is a hard thing to study? Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to study partially because melanoma is, particularly with melanoma, it, it's, partic- it, it, it's relatively rare and, and it takes a long time to, to crop up. And, and so, you know, if you were to start a study, if you wanted to start a study, for example, today about whether childhood sunburns increase your risk of, of melanoma, you could take people who have melanoma and ask them uh, if they got a lot of sunburns as a child. But like, you know, that's, that's probably 30, 40, 50 years ago for those people. And like, how accurately are they going to remember the number of sunburns they got? Sure. Yeah. The other, the other option is like, you know, you, you start following kids now and you record when they get a sunburn, but then, you know, we're talking, we're not going to see the results of the study for 
30, 40 years, something like that. So it, it is it is a very difficult, I mean, science in general is hard and takes a lot of time. And there's, mm-hmm. a, there's always like, you know, for every paper that's published, I talked to this guy once, he's like, for every paper, there's the anti-paper. And what he means by that is like, for every paper that p- comes out, somebody else is going to disagree with you. And that's good yeah. because it helps you refine your results and make your data better and all that stuff. But it also means that for people like us who are reading these things and trying to figure out, well, okay, what, what, am, what the F am I supposed to do? You know, sometimes like the science just isn't there enough to have an answer yet. And it will be at some point, but today, like conclusively, you know, there are lots of questions that we just don't have good answers to. Yeah. I mean, this does bring up a question that I that I wanted to ask you. So my, I come to this conversation as somebody who is in the beauty industry. I'm a beauty editor, beauty journalist. And, you know, so I come to the table with a very specific lens just because, you know, I am inundated with dermatologists and all this conversation. And, you know, I'm constantly trying to give people the best advice possible Uh with also the understanding that perhaps we don't know the full picture, but I guess I would say, you know, out of an abundance of caution, maybe we should just keep on giving this this advice because i don't know what else to do and i i think there's a validity to that argument because you know i you know as somebody who's also in the clean beauty space i tell people to avoid ingredients all the time out of an abundance of caution so you know why wouldn't i also do the same tell them to wear sunscreen because hey we don't know the full story yet but you know it's better to just protect yourself is there I mean, should I be doing that? Or is there a better way to phrase this to people? Or is there a better way to tell people what to do? I think it's, if you're in the beauty industry bubble, it's kind of hard to see the outside. So I'm just curious. Yeah. So I don't think that's bad advice. In fact, one of the, one of the sunscreen experts I talked to said pretty much exactly the same thing. He said, listen, the evidence that sunscreen prevents skin cancer is not as strong as the evidence for like, you know, most new drugs that come on the market or, you know, (laughs) the COVID vaccine, for example. Right. But yeah. But out of an abundance of caution, I'm just going to go ahead and wear sunscreen. The, the, the way that I think about it is this, like, I keep coming back to this, this, this idea that we, the one thing we know really, really well is that too much sun causes skin cancer, right? We have some evidence that sunscreen helps prevent skin cancer. So I'm going to sort of tailor my behavior to target both of those things. For example, like if I, if I have to be out in the sun for a long time in the middle of the day in the summer, yeah, I'll wear sunscreen, but I'll also wear a hat. I'll also wear sunglasses. You know, I live on the East coast of the U S so I don't personally see a need to wear sunscreen in the dead of winter, right? If I lived in Australia, I would wear a lot more sunscreen than I do. Um, I, I'll also try and avoid too much sun. Like I, I, and I absolutely will never set foot in a tanning salon. I won't, you know, roast myself on the beach. Um, and the thing that the the advice that I actually think maybe gets lost sometimes is like go see your dermatologist. You know, do yeah. a full body skin check once a year because if you do end up with skin cancer and skin cancer is the most common cancer in the US, if you do end up in skin with skin cancer, you know, you want to catch it as early as possible. I think those to me those things are a good balance of like you know, resting on the things that we know, acting a little bit out of an abundance of caution, and also having like that safety net of, you know, I actually, you know, if if I'm applying sunscreen on a daily basis, I, I don't know what it's doing. But I do know that if I go to the dermatologist once a year and get a full body skin check, that the likelihood is that they'll be able to catch any skin cancer early and we'll take care of it. and It'll be fine. So that, you know, I think like, 
where it gets tricky is if the only advice you are saying to someone is like wear sunscreen and then just ignore the rest, I think that might be a little problematic. But I think if you, if you give someone the full picture and let them understand, like, listen, this is what we know really well. This is what we don't know so well, but like out of an abundance of caution, sure do it and make sure you go see your, your dermatologist like that I would be comfortable with. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And I think that, yeah, I think that probably too much in this, in this industry or just, you know, even in, in my own work to call myself out, I think sometimes I do rely too much on just, oh, well, this is the quick answer. Tell people to wear sunscreen, you know, and it is important to give people the full picture because, you know, so much of this is not just dependent on the products that you put on your body. It's about the life that you live. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's, I think that's really good advice and, you know, something to absolutely keep in mind going forward for myself. You know, I'm curious, have you been following this benzenine recall controversy with yeah. the SPF? Yeah, yeah. So so this is this is the news that that there was an independent lab that found benzene in like a quarter of sunscreens they tested. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so on the face of it, not great. Not great news. Not great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um I you know like I hope that the FDA will at least investigate the claim, right? And if they confirm it, you know, they should tell those manufacturers to get benzene out of the sunscreen. The the one thing I'll say is there there are a t- there's a lot of different chemicals out there that that cause cancer. Benzene is one of the ones we we know really well causes cancer. But this analysis, it's not like they were looking for you know fifty different chemicals and benzene popped up. They were only looking for benzene and you know, yeah. contamination is a serious issue, but ideally you, you would test, you know, you develop a sort of multi-contaminant test where you're not just looking for one thing because then it's kind of like a whack-a-mole thing, you know, okay, like, all right, we'll, we'll change our production process to get rid of benzene, but you know, what if something else sneaks in there or we, you know, so, so this like sort of whack-a-mole approach to contamination is not, in my opinion, the best. Um, the other thing that I'm not crazy about about this thing is is that this is called uh, science by press release. So <laughs> this company just <laughs> I like put out, that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, like they put out a press release, right? They did not submit this to a peer reviewed journal. It was not subject to other scientists who are you know supposed to be like skeptical readers of your work to to kind of come through and and make sure that what you're saying is is correct. So I, you know, not to say that I'm like disbelieving the results, but just it would be better in the future if they, if they, if they were to submit their work to a peer reviewed journal. I mean, you can still put out a press release after doing that, right? But it makes, it would make me more confident in the work itself. So on the face of it, not great. Um, We shouldn't really have benzene in our sunscreens, but the way it was done was not optimal. Okay. Is there anything that people can do in the meantime? You mean specifically about benzene? Yeah. Or other than just following the story and trying to keep informed? Yeah. I mean, probably, listen, if you wanted to be really cautious, I mean, I don't know if you, so in 2019, the FDA put out a proposed rule. This has nothing to do with benzene, but it's just a general like ingredients kind of thing. In 2019, the FDA put out a proposed rule on sunscreen saying, proposing that the, the, the quote unquote chemical sunscreen ingredients, the organic sunscreen ingredients, things like oxybenzone, avobenzone, anything that ends with an O-N-E, 
they said, hey, these things are, we're, we're going to propose that these things are not generally recognized as safe and effective, which is the FDA's lingo to say, like, like pump the brakes a little bit here. And that the, the quote unquote physical, the inorganic ones, titanium dioxide, zinc oxide, those mm-hmm. are generally recognized as safe and effective. So, you know, if you, if you really want to narrow down your sunscreen choices, you could, you know, you could go off this benzene list and pick the ones that didn't have benzene in it, which is most of them. And then you could also pick a, a, an inorganic sunscreen, so a zinc oxide or a titanium dioxide sunscreen. I think this is great advice from George and advice we typically give here at MindBuddyGreen. I'm going to take it a step further and suggest that you find an option with both zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, or at the very least one that contains zinc oxide, as it's the ingredient that can protect you from both UVA and UVB rays. Titanium dioxide while a great addition to sunscreen only protects you from UVB. So we think it's important to use both. Yeah, that, that's like if you wanted to be extra ultra super duper cautious, you could sure. do that. Our readers tend to be or our listeners tend to be. So good advice. Okay, so just a few final questions and these are a little bit more fun. I know you write about ingredients and chemicals of all kind, but you know, as a as a beauty editor, I am curious, are there any ingredients you know, outside of SPF in our space that kind of pique your interest? Or is there anything that you, I don't know, that is common in the beauty industry that maybe makes you cringe because we are spouting misinformation or maybe we don't know enough? Is there anything that, you know? Yeah. So every time I see the words clinically proven in a beauty ad, I I think to myself, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, fucking right. You know? Oh no, we do that all the time. I know. It's not, you know, it's not that I think like, someone hasn't done some clinical trial somewhere. I do. I think that, you know, if a company is saying like, yeah, we did a clinical trial, I, be- I believe that they did a trial. It's just like, you know, if I've learned anything from writing this book is that it's the devil's in the details. And it's, yeah. it, it's like I was saying, like sci- doing science properly is so hard. And there is such a strong incentive for a beauty company doing a trial on their own product to say that it works that sure. like, I just go in immediately skeptical, you know, th- things like, like lipstick and foundation or like things that obviously work where you don't need a clinical trial, like whatever, that's fine. Sure. But things like, you know, anti-aging cream or whatever, like there, I, I just am, I am so skeptical of all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think that's totally fair. You know, one thing that we talk about here all the time is that the beauty industry is fairly unregulated and we can kind of just say whatever we want. Mm-hmm. And that sets up a, a lot of bad bad behavior on our part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not it's great. The same, like if it's unregulated, you can, you can say whatever you want to say, and it's not going to get challenged unless someone goes to the FDA and say, Hey, this person is saying this like crazy shit. We should probably check them on that. But that doesn't happen very often, right? Most of the time it just makes it to store shelves. People buy it, they use it. If it seems to work, then they keep using it. It keeps selling. And there's, there's no like ever, there's no like check that's ever done on that. So yeah. Totally. No, like, yeah. 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 It's that or they get sued. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, that's its own separate conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So last question. I ask all my guests this, what do you do for yourself? How do you take care of your, you know, yourself, your skin? Most of my guests are traditional beauty folks. So they have very um, specific answers, but I, I think that you probably come from this in a really interesting way because, you know, you study all these ingredients and you probably have some in- interesting thoughts on how you should be taking care of your body and yourself. So what do you do? 
So will it shock and appall you if I say that I use Irish spring bar soap to wash my face? Uh, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's the general level of my beauty routine. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll send thing... you some recommendations. How about okay, that? Okay, great. Yeah, that, that'd be great. Actually, you know what? I, I actually what I've been looking for recently is like, I would love a conditioner that smells like like a like it was designed for men. That would be great. I would love that. Okay, um, I can I, I can definitely. Say, but when you say designed for men, does that like what does that mean? Yeah, good question. So I, I like I don't know like non fruity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Non fruity. Yeah. Like 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 herby woody. Herby you know, woody. Maybe even a little fresh air situation. Exactly. Like I just came in from you know being a lumberjack or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can I can absolutely find find you some conditioner <laughs> options. <laughs> um. So I did end up sending some options over to George. Since he likes bar soaps, I recommended some options from Osmia, Ethnique, and Orzen Alps. These are all gentle options that are focused on sustainability and they won't strip your skin barrier. All in all, really, really great options if you're somebody who does like to stick to a bar soap. For conditioner, I really like Raul's classic conditioner. It's scented with their signature Palo Santo. It is absolutely lovely and has that nice woodsy herbal notes that he wanted. Odell also has a nice neutral scent, but it's more marine and kind of ocean breezy than woodsy, but it's nice and gender neutral. But like, I learned that I've been applying sunscreen wrong my entire life. And, and sure. the reason for that is like, so most people do this too. They use it like a moisturizer. They'll like put it on and then they'll rub it into their skin until it's completely gone. And at that point, you know, you've massaged it under the top layer of your skin cells. And what you actually want for sunscreen is for it to form a protective barrier above your skin cells. So I was told by a sunscreen expert that the right way to put it on is to smear it very lightly over the surface of your skin and then just step away, like let it dry, don't touch it. And as it dries, it, it actually binds to the top layer of your skin. And that, by the way, is why the bottle says wait 15 minutes before doing anything. Because if you like, you know, if you apply sunscreen and then put on clothing, it'll probably just wipe it off um, yeah. before it gets a chance to bind to the top layer of your skin. So that's, that's one very concrete thing that I do differently now after having done all this research. All right. I think we could all we can definitely all do that before we go, you know, go to the beach or go spend the day hiking or something like that. I think that's something we can all commit to. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was so fascinating. I am so impressed by by your work and how how in-depth you go. So thank you so much for joining us and um, sharing all your information with us. I, I think this will be super helpful for, for our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Hey guys, just popping back in here to say thanks for joining us this week at Clean Beauty School. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you're looking for more beauty content or just wellness content in general, don't forget to check out our website, mindbodygreen.com, our Instagram, mindbodygreen, and of course, our parent podcast, the Mind Body Green Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks again. See you next week.